0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
1: I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Right, so we are now well and truly into 2024. In Australia, which is where I am at the moment for the next month or two, the long summer holidays came to an end this week and everyone is fully back at school and work and yoga classes and the rest. Now, over the break, I've been running some best of episodes and today to keep the holiday spirit alive just a little longer, I'm sharing a super fun chat I had some time back with the mad adventurer, Beau Miles. Next week, I will be back with new interview episodes landing on Wednesdays, and I'll be firing up the Friday, looser, ask me anything AMA format chats, which sometimes take the form of a bonus episode with the guest from the Wednesday interview. Well, I mean, I could be a bit more structured, but I'm not sure that being more structured would match life any longer, especially going forward. I think you know what I mean. Now, I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on two things. First, I'd love to get some fresh questions that I can attend to in those Ask Me Anything or AMA episodes. I'm truly happy for them to be personal, ridiculously intimate, or ones that call on my expertise for whatever that's worth, or my love of researching ridiculously intimate and intricate things on the behalf of others. The second Uh, I guess feedback I'd love is I need some fresh inspiration regarding guests to interview here on Wild. Most of you know the drill. I interview big minds, big humans with, you know, some sort of wild idea that busts through the stayed stuck status quo thinking and gets us living our precious lives better. So it's not just a, I don't know, a cute chat with someone I like the sound of. There generally has to be that wild idea element. So if you have any ideas, if you've got any wild ideas speaking to either these ask me questions or, or some great interview guests, feel free to contact me in the comments section over at my Substack, which is where I do all of my connecting now. I'm largely perturbed and underwhelmed by the other social platforms these days. So if you need to find me there, it's sarahwilson.substack.com. There's a link in the show notes and, yeah, you know, about the place on my Instagram, ironically. Right, now, I hope you enjoy the mad, wild energy of this fun episode recorded just over a year ago. Music Today's guest used to be one of those epic adventurers you read about in Outside Magazine and National Geographic. Beau Miles, an Australian academic, author, YouTuber and Australian ambassador for Patagonia and Outward Bound, has climbed Everest Base Camp, attempted a 4,000 kilometre kayak trip around the southern tip of Africa, become the first person to run 650 kilometres across the Australian Alps, of course. He's kayaked the Bass Strait and more such crazy stuff. But then as he is written, quote unquote, a chunk of dumbass porridge got caught in my beard and all of a sudden the very act of adventuring and expeditioning becomes as routine as home life. Which is to say, there was a moment somewhere in some far-flung and dangerous place, sometime around breakfast, where he realised there is no need for a curious, expansive, meaning-seeking soul to go so far afield, burning up carbon miles, driven by his or her ego, only to get porridge in their beard. Instead, they can be a backyard adventurer. Now, I'd heard about Bo via a bunch of men, mostly, in my circle, who told me I should just meet the guy. And so, I checked out a bunch of Bo's YouTube videos and his new book, Backyard Adventurer, which chronicles his experimental close-to-home explorations and challenges, replete with truly kooky and joyous philosophy. There's the time he slept in a tree outside his front door for a night. The video of this went viral, or the story of how he ran the length of the old Warragul-Noochee railway line to learn its history, dressed in a train driver uniform carrying a shovel and three jars of dried pasta just to chuck a hardship bomb into the equation. And the one where he decided to eat his body weight in beans, which equates to about 200 tins over 40 days. It saw him questioning existence as well as arriving at an answer for it. This episode is more of a two-way chat because we both really just wanted to talk out the virtues and fun and absolute importance of flipping your day-to-day life into a flotation with going to your edge, scaring yourself every day, as per Eleanor Roosevelt, getting out of ruts and returning to play as an adult, and doing it all so that you can get cool and close up with your own flavor of weirdness. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Bo Miles. I have been looking forward to this IRL chat for quite some time. It's
2: kind of our third or fourth attempt. I think we've had some, I've had it, I've put you off a couple of times. You've had to cancel. It. So it's so nice, nice to be here just sitting in front of a person. Gee, yeah. We've had two years of just looking at the screen. So, yeah, thanks for And I me. go
1: the effort to actually do things in real life. We're, I should point out we are actually in a place called the White House, In um, not the White House. Imagine that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> they just thought they'd have us. It's, the awful, it's almost
2: as impressive, this joint. It
1: is. It's a beautiful building in Melbourne, in Paran, and my friends, Barry and Danny own it. It's a communal space. This is where they produce Dumbo Feather, the podcast and the magazine, uh, the School of Life. It's just a beautiful space. So we get to sit in nice environs.
2: High, yeah, high ceilings, good thinky space.
1: Yeah. And our microphone's propped up on copies of Project Drawdown by Paul Hawken, who is a phenomenal climate activist. But anyway, we digress. I have a feeling we may be doing this a fair bit in the conversation. For no other reason than it fascinates me. Of all your challenges that you set out in your book and um, on your YouTube videos, this is the one that challenges me the most. It's the bean eating challenge. I imagine I
2: knew that was going to come up because, Mm. you know, you being a kind of foodie type or someone who's very interested in what goes in and out.
1: Can you talk us through and perhaps start from why you decided to do this particular challenge?
2: I'm not a massive reader, but I'll always be reading something generally. And so like, like a lot of 35 year old hipsters, I went through a bit of a Steinbeck phase and you read kind of great travelogues or great books of American writers. And I read Tortilla Flat by Steinbeck. Yep. And there's, you know, it's a great book, beautifully written, of course, but there's a, there's a page or two in there where he talks about it's one, one page where Teresina Cortez, this mother, she's 29 and got 10 kids. All she can afford to feed the kids is beans and tortillas. She just ladles it out onto the floor and it's this beautiful scene and I think, wow, all these kids are wriggling around and there's six months old and three, three-year-olds three all just come scampering in to eat beans straight off the floor. And I thought, wow, that is and – and Aren't he- they the
1: healthiest kids in, yeah, the, in the, the, the village? Yeah, the doctor hears about this yeah. or
2: the school nurse hears about this, sends around the doctor. The doctor says, you know what, I've poked and prodded these nut brown sporty kids and they are the healthiest – best teeth, best hair, you know, they are healthy kids. And I thought, you know what, that's just – it was such a cool page of a book that I thought, imagine if I just ate beans for a month uh, or, or my body weight in beans, thereby every cell of me is beans. And I thought that's a cool idea.
1: So your body weight in beans, how many beans? Like what are we – what quantities well, are we talking I, I, about? I did
2: the math once. It's many – it's tens of thousands of beans themselves. You're eating each. like
1: a can of a day, yeah, and this oh, no, three is where cans a day. yeah,
2: this is where you, someone like you, would come and say, "Bo, come on, dude, why didn't you cook your own beans?" And totally, a lot of people said yes. that, cook your own beans, make up this beautiful big mix. But I wanted the easeability of just, you know, there's 400 grams. I want to chug it down. I wanted the, the sort of lack of food time, mileage throughout the day as well. You simplifying everything just and so, so you just
1: bought the tins. Got 190
2: it. tins of mixed beans, mostly organic, salt reduced, uh, and took off all the labels and then I would just eat as many beans as, as I like. So you
1: never knew if you're getting kidney or chickpea? No. Nah.
2: You just, all right. No. Nah. And everyone <laughs> says, well, why don't you drink coffee and they being, well, they're a bean? Well, then not a bean and, and, and many other things. So the caffeine thing was the biggest, the hardest thing of the first four days. Yeah. The next two weeks were just horrible as carbohydrates or my version of carbohydrates just got eked away. Yeah. And then there was this sort of strange status quo in the Maybe middle you of it. the
1: tortillas as well.
2: Oh, totally. I, of course I did. Yeah. yeah, and everyone said that. Why didn't you have the tortillas? But there you go.
1: So about 100 days in though, I read this in your book, you kind of go like – I think you say life turned beige. <laughs> oh, everything was
2: six. You know, I couldn't bust out of a six. It was a forty-day experiment, so it wasn't quite a hundred days, but it was a it was a very long forty days. Oh no,
1: so it was a hundred tens in, so it's halfway exactly. Yeah, so yeah,
2: yeah, hundred yeah, tens in. It was yeah, totally. I was in WA giving a talk, and I was I was so underwhelming just as a human. I thought this is maybe I'm feeling like oppressed people with food feel like. You know, yeah. I, I had some massive insights into how maybe other people feel. Can you?
1: share some of those revelations because I think that sort of, you had a few openings, didn't you, from that grim beige moment?
2: So I gave this talk over there. You're right, I'm smack bang in the middle of this experiment and I I was driving back to the airport, this gorgeous 29 degree day in Western Australia, big sky country, and I'm at a petrol station filling up. There's rubbish and crap everywhere at the side of this petrol station and I just, I watched the sun go down and had a bit of a break, walked around the car, kicked the tyres and I just thought, shit, I'm experiencing something right now that is profoundly, Subhuman based okay. on eating one thing. Now, I didn't feel that the day before, but it was this slow sort of creeping towards this point of and I'm I'm an optimist. You and I talked earlier. Yeah. I'm an optimist like you are, and I feel pretty good. I'm a nine out of ten kind of guy. Because I choose days. it. Because I choose to be that mm-hmm. way because it sucks being a four. Yeah. So I'm at this petrol station and I'm just thinking, you know what? This is this is bullshit. I feel like I um it's not 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 suicidal but it was very much i felt like it, what's, the point? what's the point of being a human or, or of being a bloody dead weight on yourself on others on the environment whatever you know i not you know i was in the car park for 15 minutes thinking shit this is i'm i'm starting, it was existential. To, I'm starting to feel shit that i've never felt before yeah yeah, yeah it was full on yeah, In a kind of, I knew what was happening and it was, and it was, the gravity was there and I, I really like that gravity. Like, great. Like when you have a death, a close death to you and you feel that and you're uncontrollable yes. and you feel it and you know it. I, I just let myself. Go with it. You know?
1: I know what you mean. Yeah, that sort of it's appropriate to be dark and down. Yeah, and so you go, go there. It. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you did there. But you know, you mentioned just a moment ago you had a sense of what it was like to be a food restriction type, you know, a dieter or a, or whatever, or just
2: someone who can't get the. You know, we go into our supermarkets now, and, and you've got seventeen food pyramids staring at the face. You know, mm-hmm. let alone all the numbers and stuff that are a part of it. But mm. as far as a supermarket now is just wow, you know, it's 15 Amazons on its head. So to strip that right back to something quite basic where you've only got one or two things in a tin, your whole life becomes one or two things in a sense. I tried to say it in the film that my spectrum of feelings and emotions was heavily reduced. Okay, so, so it's the,
1: proportionate.
2: Yeah. And the flip of that was, okay, think about the poor buggers out there that have, are oppressed with food and they really only do have, they have a smaller choice in their life via food and they're via, therefore they have a smaller sensory output or, or, or emotional, um, availability. Ability. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, I think you make the point that food is so pivotal. It's so central to the human experience. And when you take away that kind of thing, I think narrowing our choices like that for a, brief period can actually be incredible for opening up other senses, right? Yeah. So you shut down one sense taste or, you know, the sort of the dopamine fix that we yeah. get from food. And then that makes other things come online. And that can be a great thing. But then if you deprive yourself for too long, it can flip the other way.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think we all say, and it's so cliche, we've been saying it for years, we, we are what we eat, but it's such a throwaway line. We don't really know it until you, and I've never been a dieter as such. I've never been super restrictive. So this was my first kind of dance into something that was quite radical in a sense. Like I suppose a lot of people are when they have those shake diets or they have a soup diet or they have a veggie only or whatever, but it was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, and I get the sense that you go to these places, you do these kinds of challenges to access these kinds of pain points and openings and truth moments about the human experience. I
2: suppose so. You know, I'm still I've still got massive ego in in a sense that I'm trying to figure out my own little planetary system, and I've always sort of used my body as that the martyr for that. My legs and arms, let's go somewhere and feel something and you know, do big long paddle days, end on end or running days or whatever yeah. and, and do that. yourself. it's very basic. It's really basic. Whereas this and the film itself, it was the hardest film I've ever had to make because I didn't go anywhere. It was very internal. Was it Dennis Quaid when when he miniaturizes himself in the 90s and he went inside someone's body and it was, you know, the inside of your body is a universe. Yeah. And so let's have an adventure inside my body. Yeah. Via beings. Which is
1: what meditators do and there you go. yeah, there's, there's a number of techniques for going into that space. Beans wouldn't be my preferred option. But look, <laughs> speaking of sort of biblical spiritual moments, there's a line in your book, train cancellations can be biblical experiences. Oh, yeah. And I think that was the trigger for you to decide to walk to work one day, which is not the same as walking to work for most people, you walked 90 kilometers to work. Again, what was, I guess, the little thrill in your loins or your lower gut? I feel it just below my belly button when I've got that sense of, ooh, this feels good. You know, like, oh, right. I want to do this. Or I get it at the back of my neck. Like I have a couple of points in my body where I go, if I'm feeling it there, right, game on. I've got, to, <laughs> I've got to do it. So what was the thrill that you saw in walking to work when you got fed up with the train system?
2: Mine was probably not as good feel as yours. I was genuinely pissed off. And, and when I say genuinely pissed off, kind of a bow pissed off, I thought that I saw it as an opportunity. I'm not really a control freak as such, but I don't like it when big systems that are very complex and should be better uh, are not better or when lines of communication are just crap.
1: And plus a certain type of person suffers. It's very rarely that the very wealthy and powerful get inconvenienced by large systems.
2: No, well, they wouldn't be on PT in the first place. Mm. No, and and you know PT I, I been
1: the train system here in the, Victoria, yeah, the yeah. public
2: transport. Look, <laughs> and I'm still very loyal to public transport. I, I think I've give it a go because I I love it. I don't mind people watching if a bloody train's uh, delayed for mm. 15 minutes. What does piss me off and what instigated that long walk to work was the fact that no one could tell me what was wrong, and it was probably they couldn't tell me what was wrong because they weren't allowed to tell me. You know, there was a bloke that was hit by the train and he was squished all all over the place. Just tell us. And then, okay, my humanity would kick in and go, you know what? I'll happily sit here for an hour because something bad has just happened rather than just shitty engineering or whatever. But just tell me. And and it really pissed me off that I I couldn't get to the heart of the problem. And not to be a control freak, but I thought, you know, and then there's something so liberating about just walking a long distance.
1: I totally agree with that. I'm a big fan of it. I want to get granular on that very thing because I get asked this question all the time, like what? go through your head when you're walking eight, nine hours a day. And in this case, how long did it take you? Was it 24 hours? How long did it take 30 you?
2: 30 to- hours, yeah. And 90 s- kilometers. Yeah, but I slept because I just slept on the side of the road for one night. So, though I did it twice and because uh, I didn't film it properly enough the first time I was so obsessed about that just is getting there.
1: An occupational hazard, isn't oh, it? <laughs> yeah, I got there. Oh,
2: shit. You know what? This is an underwhelming film. I better do it again. <laughs> so, yeah, I slept on the side of the road, same spot both times, actually, um, in amongst the gorse uh, near a petrol station. So, I did 50Ks and 30. 30Ks the next morning to get in for a for class. I had to go to work. So yeah, I was sort of walking for probably 20 hours. Yeah.
1: What does go through your head when you do something long and lonely like that? I mean, it gets so personal, doesn't it? I know that I go through phases of just hating on the situation and then a little bit of hating on everything just for a bit. And then I find little pockets in my being and I don't know where it is, whether it's in my head, whether it's in, I don't know, somewhere else that sort of bubble up and and just are there to give me a bit of hope and a little bit of expansiveness in those ugly moments. I also tend to get quite finish line obsessed. And that can actually just dictate everything if you're always thinking about how much further to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, generally for me, it's about what I'm going to eat when I get to the finish line. And I'm actually happy with that as a carrot that dangles because the elaborate meals, (laughs) the elaborate snacks that I'm going to concoct via the vending machine at the train station at the end, you know, Tell me some of the thoughts that go through your mind because they're relentless and then there's sort of a numb sort of a numbing well, are, out for a I've, yeah. I've spent
2: an awful lot of time by myself out there either on sea or on on the road or in the hills. And my ratios are probably opposite to yours. If you're say 20, 80, you know, 20% of the time you're in a pretty good zen state and 80% of the time you're kind of beating up on the mm. moment or the situation. I'm the opposite based on the fact that I'm often filming it or making a story out of it. And what always irked me about Adventure Tales was that these bloody epic tales were often done with that negative lens of, oh, this is so hard. Everything's so mm. bloody hard. Mm. You know, the old timers never did it. You know, they'd just say it quite matter-of-factly in a well, sort of old, Well, they would also get back way. from the
1: adventure, have time to sort of put it through a rose-tinted glasses and then sit down and write about it, you know, languidly. That's true,
2: yeah. Well, look, from my perspective as, as a watcher of films and a and a reader of Adventure Tales, I always thought it was bloody. Weird when someone who's made a choice to be on the side of Everest or through the Amazon and they're having a big old grizzle about it and it lasts for 20 or 50 or 100 pages. I think, you know what? That's bullshit. Mm. You chose to be there. Mm. You chose to have your big life flip moment and go and live, you know, this adventurous life. And now you're moaning about it and trying to make money out of a book of it. So I always thought, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be pretty positive about it because I've made the choice to be there. Otherwise, just go and be a carpenter or or a farmer and, and. you know, be a bit more nine to five and live on your range and whatever. So I try and be optimistic. Yes, I've always got those sort of destination things in mind as well. And I think that's really healthy, but I'm learning more and more. And as a somewhat impatient person, I'm always learning more and more to take tangents. And really embracing and
1: allow them just to go there. I mean, yeah. I think that's one of the best things about hiking. And I should say that I get those hating on it kind of thoughts, really for the only the first hour, right. as my body's adjusting and I'm trying to digest the massive breakfast I just ate and all of that you kind don't have of a big thing.
2: Breakfast here, you? you're not a big breakfast. Kind no, of
1: I'm not. I don't know how you know that, but you're right. You it's just don't Just see when it. I hike, I do. Okay, because I just I load up. Yeah. You know, I load up and-, Smart. and
2: There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just
1: don't want to actually- I don't like eating while I'm hiking. <laughs> I'm not right. a lot sit down and snack <laughs> kind of person. It just gets in the way. That's of the funny. hiking business. <laughs> yeah, I'll often load up and then not eat on the hike yep. and then load up when I stop. That's ultra not,
2: running 101. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just load up the day before, hydrate the heck out of it and you've got it half in the bag just because you're sort of juiced up by the time the morning is Yeah, hits. and you
1: don't have to waste time and energy thinking about Good. the food bit. And you just lose interest in food, yeah. I think. Which, which is to my point, you have these sort of you know uh, uh, rigid thoughts, gripping thoughts. And then just gradually, gradually, and I do believe it's the pace of walking. There's a quote that I have in my book that walking goes at the pace of discerning thought. And so gradually everything settles. And what happens is stuff that's meaningful to you, that's been buried by all the noise, starts to bubble up. It sort of gurgles, doesn't it? And they just sort of come up and they just land. And like you say, I allow myself to wander off. Okay, this thought bubble over here. And then That thought bubble over there, and I don't try to grip them. I don't try to anchor them into something meaningful or coherent. I just allow it. And then by the end of a walk, and if it's a full day walk, you literally arrive home with an absolutely centred idea of what the answer is to whatever problem you were trying to work out. Yeah. I don't even have to try.
2: Yeah. Look, and it's a good kind of selfishness. A lot of people beat up on selfishness or ambition or ego. Well, there's healthy selfishness and and then there's
1: destructive selfishness. It's a really good
2: kind. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm I've always been attracted to expeditionary travel because of that selfishness and because that it's very simple to go from A to B. And yes, it might be physical, but it's very simple physicality yeah. in a sense, walking or paddling a long distance, what what whatnot. So I love it. I mean, th- think of how simple a walk is compared to a regular day at work in front of emails and screens and expectations. And you've got to constantly shut down all of those fragmentary thoughts. You've got to shut them down because you got some you got something to do.
1: Well, that's the other thing. Once it gets to the hard bit, right? Where you're starting to run out of energy, you're lagging, you're just kind of there's another mindset that kicks in, right? So it's all expansive and beautiful and gurgly and, and problem solvy, but then you do get to a point where it's hard and there's something you've got to do, isn't there? Like you've got to dig down into a reserve.
2: Well you don't have a choice. You gotta exactly. get you gotta to get to camp or water or wherever the bloody vending machine is or whatever it is you're trying to get to, you know. And you, you get just, quite you're just singular. Get there. Yeah.
1: I remember I went on a mountain bike ride with my brother in Vietnam. He was living over there and I had food poisoning and I was menstruating and in Vietnam, they don't do tampons. They only had menstrual pads. We set off and I had, you know, stuff coming out all my ends and yep. I was very, very sick and it was 40 degrees and it was almost a hundred percent humidity. We were riding up through this really hot area up to Dalat in the mountains and it was a good eight, hour ride, but we were riding through communist areas. We couldn't stop. I just went into this space for hours on end where I just said to my brother, I'm not stopping. Don't make me stop. Because I knew that if I stopped, my head space would descend. And sure enough, I got to the top of the mountain, literally just digging down into every reserve. It was like a sponge wound around my entire body and founded every last bit of mitochondria. And that's all I could concentrate on but it's really interesting. I became a different person from that experience. That ability to know that there are reserves that you can draw on because you have to and you will. I have been able to push myself both physically, mentally, and emotionally ever since because I know that it's there.
2: Remember the the scene uh, Fight Club. It's the Brad Pitt. I'm still I mean, I know the movie. Which scene? So they're at a like a quickie mart, Seven Eleven type thing, and the attendant is. H- held hostage essentially by brad pitt or edward norton same like you know i'm still confused who's who he takes him out the back and he puts a gun to his head and says i'm not going to pull the trigger but i very much could so you've got to reinvent your life from this point on go and be the vet that you want to be or the doctor i think it was and i want to come back in a month's time and if you're not enrolled and i'm um, you can show me your student card then i'm going to pull the trigger and, and I, i've always thought of it was a, it was an incredible moment of potential that we we often don't we don't do that to ourselves. we don't We don't put something to our heads in a sense. and We hope
1: that somebody else, we hope that Brad Pitt does. Do you know what I mean? Like we're waiting for the moment when we're going to have a gun drawn on us to make us make that big leap. Yeah, Yeah, well,
2: my lame version of that is being made redundant you know, I, I was really comfortable in a well-paying job and I kind of wanted to leave, but I didn't either. But being made redundant was fantastic. It, it, it was my sliding door. And I hope to have another five of those in the next 10 years based on my decisions and not by someone else putting it to my head, but doing it yourself. They're okay, pr- And they're really, they're good to have.
1: Now, is that some of the reasoning behind you know, your backyard adventuring. Totally.
2: It's bang for buck. It's all about bang for buck. Okay. 168 hours a week. We all have it. And I said to you earlier that I don't like the term being time poor. We've all got 168 hours. And when someone says they're time poor, what? What have you got 200 hours in your week? And you're not telling me about (laughs) it. Yeah. What? Tell me about it. This time vortex of yours. We've all got the same amount of time. You bloody, it's all about choices. And yes, some of us have much harder choices to make, but they're still choices. And so it's about drilling down with those choices and bloody being militant about it and saying, you know, I I, I don't want to do that. I want to do that. I want to spend more time with kids. I want to sit in a tree more. I want to drink more water, whatever make the call. It doesn't mean that you're some sort of god and you have more time on your hands. you just got to make better choices.
1: It's interesting because quite often the thing, the gum to our head, the Brad Pitt moment in a servo or whatever it is, is something that's thrust upon us that is often deemed a tragedy or, or something. It might be a death close to you, or it might be an illness that actually gets you to reframe your life. In your case, a redundancy It's interesting, isn't it? It's often that we're rendered choiceless, right? We've had boundaries put around our general idea of how we can do things. And so a lot of the backyard idea, the idea of playing it close to home, is about putting temporary boundaries on how we do things.
2: Or removing them.
1: Right. Okay. So,
2: so my about ba- my but it backyard- means a
1: sacrifice, or it means some kind of action that yeah. narrows down our choices, even well, it's, momentarily. It's,
2: in my yeah, my stick on it all is it's a sense of perception.
1: You've said or written somewhere I can't remember which that. I'm petrified of death, so why not explore everything but that thing? And you've also written or said somewhere uh, on one of your YouTubes, the great majority of us, myself included, don't explore our thresholds physically, emotionally, and socially. So, Bo, is that why it's important to go to our edge? Because you talk about it a lot. I write about it a lot as well. Is it to get cool with death. I mean I'm getting straight I to th- the, the point so. now.
2: I hope to think so. I'm genuinely and, and I just spent two hours in the car getting here now. And and that's and that's quite a bubbled think tank time i turned the radio off and just thought about stuff it was really good and quite a rare two hours too you know i've got two little girls at the moment that's a busy household and mortality came up and this epoch in life that i'm in uh as as are you two you know we're at the peak of our powers in some respects right now with our thinkability our bodies are still very good and strong but there's a certain degrading that's going on mindfully in, in, in our bodies that scares the shit out of me that i won't have these powers forever Angela Lansbury, I think, yeah, she died recently. They're playing lots of clips on the radio about her life. Whenever you, someone is very familiar, your entire lifespan, someone's familiar with you and all of a sudden they've, they've got to that age where where you don't hear from them much anymore until they die. And so then we have this reflection on them. And I, I was thinking about that for myself and mortality today and who would give a shit when I die and, and what do I give a shit? I don't care when I'm gone, I'm gone. But what is the story that might be told then and what is my point between now and getting there? Essentially, what the hell am I going to do for the next 50 years? And where's the second ba- half
1: of your life? Where's, crisis. where's yeah. my
2: bang for buck? Yeah. Um, and you know, you talked about thresholds. I still don't think I go to my thresholds enough. I, I'm still going to try more. I want to do some stand up comedy this year, not because I want to be a stand up comic, but I want to feel like Push yourself. What, yeah. I know how bloody hard it is. You know, when someone nails a set, bloody hallelujah. And when they don't, I kind of, I'm interested about that squirm moment as well. You know, I don't mind if I'm almost a train wreck, but not quite. You know, I want to give it a go just to be shit scared because being shit scared is good. It's really good for for your spectrum.
1: Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, do something that scares you every day. And I think that our culture cocoons us from that kind of resilience muscle building, you know. Yeah. I sometimes feel, I think that, that line that you said about the fact that, you know, you're trying to get cool with death, that's why you do these challenges. I very much do the same. You know, a friend of mine said, Sarah, are you looking for trouble? And it's like, yeah, I quite I am. literally yeah. am, yeah. because when I go to troublesome places where there's some friction and some, mm. I have to fend. That's another word I use in my book. I have to fend. I have to use my primitive faculties to actually cope and work out a way. And every aspect of my life is about that. I don't buy new clothes because I kind of love the fact that I had to actually get a texture and colouring a button on my really old shirt, which is at least twenty years old. Because I'm doing a presentation after this to a big group for a keynote. You know, I cover it in with a texture and. I kind of love that because it's creative. It's creative. And, and it's that- a
2: good little secret too. To, and, and it's it's yeah, it's yeah, being a really good well, human. It's also humor. playful. Yeah.
1: And I think that's what I get as well from what you're trying to encourage us to do by just going outside our house and doing adventures very locally, whether walking – 90 kilometres to work or eating a whole bunch of tins from your kitchen, uh, tins of beans, is that as an adult, there's very few opportunities to play. And we do have a deep need, I feel, to shake up the snow cone.
2: Yeah. Well, think of adventure, right? The term adventure. Okay. We love it when our 10-year-olds adventure and, and into adolescence, and then they've got to flick the switch and you've got to get real and get get serious. And adventure evaporates unless it's your profession. And there's professional adventurers out there. It's 1%, half a percent of the pop. Who, who knows? It's this thing off to the side that people somehow can get paid to go and have these adventurous lives. But for the rest of us, yeah, we are just got to go via, the, you know, we've got to do the nine-to-five thing and whatever um, and run on. But it says
1: the- we've got to. This well, is the question I, I, I always to- I'm, I'm totally
2: with you. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of mapped that way. I got sucked into it. I did 10 years of Monash life at a big university and I became a nine-to-fiver. Weekends became the weekends. Before that, as a guide and as someone who was that sort of bloody, you know, sun chaser or a world chaser, days of the week didn't mean anything to me. It was just another day. Whereas they certainly became something, as did the times of the day when I I worked in a beehive with a whole bunch of other people in a big building and, and did very similar things. We all churn out our 25 emails a day and do our bullshit, whatever, you know.
1: Decks. Decks are the thing that I, you know, do you know PowerPoint decks? Right. That sums up. To me, what it must be like working in those environments, people do decks to justify things and it's just like, do the thing, not the deck deck that explains it.
2: Oh, totally. Anyway. And look, it was still a great life and a great thing, but it it was amazing how even someone like me who was a a bit of a resistor of these things just sort of got coerced and it was very comfortable.
1: Let's just go to another one of your challenges and it's one i really liked actually. Um, it's the marathon challenge that you did. I'm almost tempted to do it myself. Have you run a marathon? No, I've done a half marathon, but okay. I've had to pull back from running as I get older. Knees? Um, yeah, hips and, and and thyroid disease. Just, yeah. I just don't have that mitochondria, yeah, you know. Well,
2: running's running's for fools really in some respects. It's got some great advantages. But when your body's not quite right for it, don't play Well, through.
1: this is why I quite liked your way of doing it, because my major issue at the moment is I'm in a work lull. I am so bored of my thoughts pinging around inside my brain at the moment. And I like the fact that you sort of killed several birds with the one stone. Talk us through how you did that marathon because it's very creative.
2: It was really good. You know, a lot of people thought when I first scripted the idea that this is – what's the point, but What do marathons. This is a crap idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, why would you do it one – so I live on a little farm and I was finishing my PhD and I was getting fat, sitting in front of a screen. Bored of the thoughts
1: pinging around your head. Oh,
2: totally, mate. Um, yeah, exactly what you were describing and to the point where – my biggest injuries in life have been from not moving. So I had my RSI of the arms, shoulders, back, hip, back, all sorts of things were going wrong by just sitting in front of a computer. I'm sitting in this little, little, little study and looking outside, just longing to be out there. I want to go out and build stuff, do the lawns, do something with the tractor, dig a hole, bloody anything, but right. And I knew roughly that my block, you know, three farms it is, the shape of a shark tooth essentially is about a mile. I didn't know it was bang on a mile, but I thought, you know what, just go and run around the block bow, come back, reset, go and get a touch of a sweat, come back and write a thousand words and away you go. I did that and I've never run so short a distance in my life. And out I go. I barely got a sweat. I sit back in front of the computer, boom. You know, it was a really You're good on. circuit breaker. Anyway, I don't know when the idea came, but I thought, why don't I do a marathon of that same kind of thing, but instead of writing a bloody PhD in the middle, why don't I do all sorts of random shit in the shed that I've been meaning to do for years? And that's where the idea came from. So you do a mile. I run a mile every hour for 24 hours, including three in the first hour to get the marathon. So you got to do 26 miles. So I ran three three laps of the block, did a few little things in the shed. Then. Did you sleep? Yeah, I, I had catnaps. So from the, from 2am to 5am, I had 20 minutes between those hours and, and some other little jobs. So I didn't really sleep. I've, I've since redone it and didn't sleep and did other fun things. Okay. Um, but it was just bloody fantastic. It was so fragmentary. I got a whole bunch of stuff done and it was just fun. It was fun too. It was a 39 year old dude having fun, and we yes. don't often have enough fun when we just take ourselves less seriously.
1: When you are thinking of all the dumb ideas, and I've heard you say that you jot them down in a book, what makes you go, Yeah, I'm going to go with that one? Is it that the dumber the better? Is that a formula? Oh, or I, is it I that- sometimes
2: think that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got to be, it's got to be translatable too. So okay. the reason that a mile an hour has done really well, and, and I never meant that. I suppose like someone who writes a one-hit wonder, they never realize it's going to be their one-hit wonder or, or such a big hit. They might think it's a, it's good, but then it goes out there and it resonates and whatever. I, when I did a mile an hour, I never knew that it would be my most clickable idea. And I think it is clickable because it's very repeatable. People yes. can re- repeat it. But to go back a step, ideas are cheap. Ideas are really cheap. For every 10 ideas I have, only one is good. And sometimes I know it's a good enough idea to then make it into a a something. The others, I have to do some work. I have to coerce it. And so I'm writing a whole bunch of scripts at the moment to try and reshape how I tell stories. And it's freaking hard because I suck at Storytelling sub five minutes or even sub 10 minutes. I always, you know, I'm writing an article at the moment for a magazine and they've given me a word count and I'm, I'm two and a half thousand words in and I haven't got to the start. And I'm giving all this context. (laughs) (laughs) I give, I give way too much context. And so, yeah, I suck as a small storyteller and I'm trying to get better at it because I think that's a real art form and I'm, yeah, I want to make sub five minute films. And to answer your question, what would be advice on how can people you know, tap into their creativity or storytelling or whatever? Well, more
1: what about what is it in you? Because mm. I think creativity and doing an adventure. Not everybody's going to turn it into a YouTube masterpiece, right? So I'm really thinking of just the original thing that makes you get excited about doing a particular kind of challenge. A It's thing It's got to be what... fun. I, okay.
2: I just, it's got to be fun. So I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I want to do a running, like a triathlon experiment. Coming Mm -hmm. up. But it's going to be, you know, I'm going to do these three things of the triathlon in really oddball ways. And I've got to have that sense of fun whilst doing it. Otherwise, it's just.
1: How do you know if it's fun? Because, like, I've got so many emotions that run around my body all the time. And I kind of, it's hard to know when I do. Feel well, that maybe do, I've do got you get the, excited somewhere yeah. in your body. Like, is it just? Yep.
2: No, no, totally. So it's your belly button thing. You know, yeah. I think, oh, that's going to be fun. I- I'm going to really enjoy that. There's going to be a grin on my face without putting it on. It's going it to be feels re- light. Yeah, I see gonna-
1: things in color as opposed to black and white when okay. I'm like excited. Like that. I've got <laughs> a Freudian like
2: dream. You are. You've got some <laughs> shit going on. Good.
1: I've had to think about these things because I didn't always find things fun. I had to choose fun <laughs> a bit later in life. But yeah, yeah, there you go,
2: Cease. I had so. Much fun in university. I was almost depressed for five years afterwards, thinking, "Geez, I'm never going to have that much fun again." And not depressed in any way, shape, or form. But
1: you're one of those. I hated. University. I was kind of.
2: Yeah, I was kind of. Yeah, it was every fun. year
1: away from university. I wasn't that
2: wild. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I had a ball and knew it. And then at the other side of uni, you try and replicate those senses of fun, but everyone's kind of getting caught up and earning money and families and relationships. Yeah. Anyway, I've been trying to get back to what I was 20 in terms of that sense of the everyday fun which is hard to do when you've got little girls and, and a family and mortgages and things, but it's bloody there and you better push for it because otherwise, you know.
1: Well, maybe that's part of the thing is that people need to then find how they access or can identify when things feel fun. It's a really important thing to do actually. we have got to
2: take yourself a little less seriously too and, and be willing to be a bit of a goof and yeah. that sort of embrace your oddity, which I believe and everyone also, is. Yeah,
1: yeah, and also go grim and low It doesn't and, yeah. and backyardy. Make it really close to home and then you can venture out further because yeah, it doesn't really matter right. if you're Stuff up and do it for twenty minutes. The other thing that you do throw in there, Bo, I think, is sort of a little bit of risk. You say that's a, an important ingredient in all of this. You'll chuck in an element, I suppose, of of risk and hardship into your challenges. Why is that important? I'm the Australian
2: ambassador for Outward Bound, and which oh, yeah. is a really fun fun gig. And yet, what often comes up is this idea of risk and how risk is a big part of programs at school level or at industry level. I'm a big believer that risk is so over trumped and over bloody thought about. And I lived opposite a primary school once that chopped down the oak trees because the kids were throwing acorns at each other.
0: Hallelujah,
2: they're throwing bloody acorns at each other. And they get rid of the shade in the school and these cool little bombs that it the students well, can throw. Well, wasn't it? Wasn't oh, it? Awesome. Awesome. So <laughs> I, that was my first and only time I've ever gone and hugged a tree and said you man with a chainsaw, you go away. I'm not letting you do this. The only time we've ever done it. Yeah, risk. Holy shit. We are so overly commodified with this idea of risk at the moment and So we're and, overly protected from risk. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and it's for financial reasons. Nobody wants to be sued, which is a terrible well, reason to the, eliminate a bullshit experience. The, the
2: whole bullshit of it is is very rarely do we sue each other for this shit that we think we're going to get sued by, you know? Mm. I mean, it's this it's this big cloud of fear and I'm often called on as sort of a pseudo expert on risk being in the outdoor space for 20 odd years, but I'm I'm sort of not either because I Kind of resist the idea of it. Yeah, like I say, my biggest injuries in life have been sitting behind a bloody computer screen and our two foot screen now in front of our face.
1: Yeah, this is an example that I used. I had to do a, an address to the National Press Club and I was asked to speak on childhood anxiety and I went, going to have to change the topic here to lack of resilience epidemic amongst children, right? Because right? right. that's the real issue here. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, which is not to take away from the pain that children are experiencing, it's just that it's actually coming from a different basis. It's real, but it's just not because there's anxious times necessarily.
2: How'd that talk go? Were you petrified of that talk?
1: Oh, Yeah. Beyond petrifying. Yeah, that's a, that's a scary I love one, it. I imagine. I yeah, love yeah, good.
2: It. There's your threshold again. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. One of the things that I actually talk about in that presentation is that there's a thing called Dutch dropping. As an outward bound guy, you may have heard of it. It's kind of the equivalent of scouts in the Netherlands. And it's where kids get dropped off into the Dutch wilderness, which, yes, I know is probably not all that wild and scary, but still. And they have all weekend to find their way home. <laughs> cool. That's the challenge. And this New York Times journalist flew over to do a story on it. And she was interviewing the parents, you know, as they were dropping off their kids, you know, for this Dutch dropping. She was horrified. And she was asking these Dutch parents, you know, aren't you worried? And they just weren't. They were like, well, this is important. This is a process the that they go through. They're very
2: good like that. Now, yeah, what yeah. I did
1: is I went and looked <laughs> up anxiety levels amongst Dutch children and they are one of the lowest, I think the second lowest anxiety levels amongst children and teens in the OECD. Now, I'm not saying one's cause to the other, but there's obviously a culture there that does not try to eradicate risk in the same way as you know, a culture like our own.
2: I don't know why you would get rid of, you know, if you're saying there's a resilience pandemic epidemic or, you know, it's, it's rife in community, this lack of resilience, then yeah, I think there's a lot of cobblestones in the way that get you to that point. And that risk aversion is one of them. If, if someone has a better spectrum of how to manage risk and problem solve, then, you know, maybe they're not so bloody anxious in life. Yeah. And that's true. Maybe what you're saying. True.
1: So how would you throw risk and hardship into one of your challenges? And if somebody was wanting to sort of create a challenge of their own in their own backyard, well, how can you chuck in some risk bombs?
2: So the way I do it is I create my own rules. So when I walk to work, for example, it took me 30 hours to walk to work. Yeah, That is very, very easy to do if I took my backpack full of Gore-Tex and freeze-dried food and and a bedroll and bloody goose down. I'm going to have a fantastic, easy experience and it's going to be like this pseudo hike. If I don't take any of that stuff and I've got to find my water from cow troughs or out of Coke bottles and make my shelter out of housing insulation and whatever, you know what? It it was an Awesome experience because I just had to cobble together my basic fundamental yeah, needs. I just got to be warm, and you know, I used, um, I found some oil canisters for chafe cream. You know, I had nothing with me, so I just had to create lubes and waters and. What I was going what my head was going to rest on that night in the gorse. Yeah, it was really cool. And so it was about shaping my rules. So I often then put time structures on things in the ingredients. I recently ran the Fink River, the top 100K of the Fink River, and I just took a, I took stuff all stuff because I knew. That I knew it wasn't going to rain, for example, but it was all shaped around the ingredients I had with me.
1: Yeah, I will often go off on a hike and I know it's too long to get back by dark or by the last train. And so I, actually, hand. Yeah. I force my hand because I know I'm either going to have to find a shortcut up over a ridgeline or I'm going to have to hitchhike, which. I sort of get slightly scared about, but I love it that I'm going to put myself in a position of a roundabout. I never pick
2: about, up a solo female, I must admit. You That's, never do? No. No, I'm, I, I'm told I'm
1: it. a rarity. Yeah. But people who do pick me up, pick me up because they want to save me from the next person who might not be as nice as them. <laughs> yes, right. Anyway, I've never had a touch some wood and, and if you're young, a young person listening out there, don't do it without, I don't know, speaking to your parents or something first. I've only had wonderful life-enhancing Good. experiences from it. Point is, I will throw in that time constraint yeah. so that I it, it leaves me choiceless but to come up with something quite creative. Maybe that's
2: where we've come to. It's 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 forcing your own hand and being having the now to do it. Yeah, which you do. You do, and you know, by doing a press club thing where you're crapping Just yourself. Just say yes. Doing Even
1: the scarier it is, the more I'm going to say yes because I'm like this. I remember this Brené Brown, me. Brown yeah. said to me. She said, "If it feels uncomfortable, then that's a green light." Boom. Yeah. Like if this feels scary. Green light. But I also understand too that this, that's not for everyone. And and yes, us advocating for it. it yeah, I suppose. You can walk a different way to the post office. You can that's... go to a different cafe yeah. to the one that you normally go to. Just whittle
2: it down a bit more. Yeah yeah. 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 I mean,
1: backyard adventuring can get as backyardy as that, I reckon. And I do that every day as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just throw in little challenges like that that just scare me, you know, to quote Eleanor Roosevelt. Look, I'm really pushing you on this giving advice thing, but there is one piece of advice I have heard you give at the end of an interview, or maybe you wrote it in your book. I'm getting a bit confused it would have been excellent. by all it would the Boisms really I've had terrible. in my life lately. <laughs> earn less and do more. Is that how you live your life now? Yeah,
2: well, it's by default, too. And, and that does come with that counter. You know, I earn decent enough money at, at a university level. Well, you think, shit, I earn over a million bucks at that joint, you know, and then you can come to this, and I, I don't yeah, know, 20- yeah.
1: Over a million, what kind of professor were you? I was bucks. very
2: successful. <laughs> I was probably stealing pens too. I think last year I earned 22 I, I grand. I presume, I presume really that the good.
1: million bucks was over a, a long period of time. Yeah,
2: yeah, over years, over a decade. <laughs> Not per a year. No, 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 no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can I can hear all these academics go, what? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Australian academics are paid really well on a global stand. Oh, they that right? They good do, to know. They do really well. Yeah, and I earned a fifth of that last year, for example, and it was fantastic. It was really good. But I also, I can earn that less money now because I've had a well-paying job that's paid the farm off. So I'm okay. But I, I kind of lived like that when I was younger anyway. I, I've got great parents who are completely uncommodified. Both of them live by the smell of an oily rake. Both grew up in really sort of poor working class families and they're just really, they've got great ethics and, and that rubbed off.
1: So you saw that you don't need to earn more to be able to have a rich life. You saw that from your parents. And I think that's, Yeah. if I was going to say one thing, you know, you say you don't want to influence people or be a guru so much, but I think that's what we do need to see more of. People earning less and doing and living yeah. more to see that it can be done as a counterpoint to every other single message that's out there.
2: We're refinancing at the moment and the bank's come back to me multiple times. This week they came back and said, Bo, we've got all your bank statements here and all your bank accounts. You don't spend anywhere near as much money as what we'd think you probably would. You know, you're living out of a tin hut. Well, no, we just don't spend it on shit. You know, we buy food and pay the bills. And
1: I had a similar phone call from my accountant one year are you sure you spent that much? Like <laughs> um, he couldn't quite believe it. But yeah, if just you don't. spend less stuff. Just, yeah. Just. And then all the time that you're not spending in a shopping mall, you're spending outdoors doing cool stuff.
2: Yeah. A, a good friend of mine, an outdoor editor, always said, you know, what's in your pockets? You know, you've got your keys, you've got your wallet, you've got your phone. They all cost you money in some degrees. You don't have those things in your pocket. You're not using them. The car keys are the big one. If you don't get in your car, you don't spend money. Don't, in a car. There you go. Boom. Mm. So they're they're wonderful, very easy to digest metaphors. And if you don't have those things, then you don't spend it.
1: Yep. Don't own a car. So then you are forced to walk, forces your hand. Hey, Bo, we probably have to wrap this up. It's a joy to meet you. Good luck with that rollerblading. I don't know where that's going to head, but I'm sure I'll see it on YouTube soon. You will.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It's been an awesome chat. Um, Gee, yeah, you're a good egg. Uh, Good luck with the next whatever
1: it is. Thank you. If I have this right, the way to be a backyard adventurer is to allow an odd idea just to bubble forth. It's an idea that pivots from something that you do day to day, something that maybe has become a bit rote, a bit rutted, and then to shake it up somehow. Throw some risk into it or just add some weirdness, add an element that extends you beyond what feels comfortable. I think that's the most important bit. Brene Brown said to me quite some time ago, if you're uncomfortable, well, that's a green flag. What it's saying is there's something happening right now. You know, something is tingling, something's coming online. Now, if you get to the point where you're wondering if it's the right challenge or not, to some extent, I don't think it matters, at least from what Bo is telling us. But if you do feel a tingle in the belly or the spine, or you just feel like you feel light again, then that probably is also a green flag. The other takeaway from this chat is that, well, we can sit around waiting for the hand of God, you know, Deus Ex Machina to make us flip our lives. When the hand of God, say an illness or a job loss or a divorce does interfere, well, the good lesson here is to respond accordingly, to make use of the shaking up of the snow cone. But there's no need to sit around waiting for it either to be so passive. We can disrupt things ourselves. We can choose when the rut has got too deep to shake up the snow cone ourselves. You might recall my interview with the incredible Jungian psychologist, James Hollis. It was many, many episodes ago, but what he says is that our souls are calling us to an appointment with life. So when we feel sort of an itch or we feel stuck or we feel irritated, that's our souls whispering to us to meet life where it's at. Now, if we ignore it and we don't change our ways, if we, if we don't disrupt things and change direction, that itch and that whisper will turn into Into, well, a tap on the shoulder, then it will progress to a shove and then eventually a slap down, like a massive illness, a massive loss, a job loss, a death, whatever it might be. And so I guess the art here, the artfulness lies in listening to the whisper when it's a whisper and taking action before things become a shove and then the royal slap down. Now, I'm with Bo here. When things feel rutty and stuck and itchy, I climb a tree. You know, it's just what I've always done and I continue to do it to this day. Or Or I walk a different way to a meeting or I start talking to somebody I wouldn't normally talk to. These small shifts can do the job sometimes, you know, to keep life wild. Until next week, please do find your own way to keep your life wild. Keep it local. Keep it in your backyard.